everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Today's guest has been a storyteller for many years, and I first saw him, I think it was on stage at the National Storytelling Festival in Tennessee, and I remember just watching the, the faces of children listening to him, and I thought, this, this, this gentleman has the ability to really just inspire imagination and really just capture the attention of the next generation. And so uh, it's been... Uh, a number of years now, and he's been telling stories ever since. Bobby Norfolk has been a story performer, actor, and author for 43 years. He is a recipient of the NSN Circle of Excellence Award and has traveled internationally, promoting his craft to all who will listen. He was a National Park Service ranger at the Gateway Arch and Historic Old Courthouse in St. Louis for 10 years, honing his living history programs for the stage. In 2018, Bobby was awarded the degree of Doctor of Humane Letters by the University of Missouri-St. Louis and gave the commencement address to the College of Arts and Sciences. Bobby, thanks for joining me. I'm honored to have you on today. Thank you, Stephen, for the invitation. Now, my daughters uh, grew up listening. You, you don't know this, I don't think, but listening to some of your stories um, when, they were, when they were younger at the National Storytelling Festival and other places. So you had an impact on them. Now they're grown, but, uh, but uh, you had an impact on them when, when, they were, when they were younger. So I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate you for that. I think, and I was thinking things through, too. I think we actually performed together at, at a school or an event many, many years ago. And I, I was like, as I was thinking back, I thought, I believe that he took the stage right before me, and I was intimidated to, to follow up, Bobby, on, on stage. So, so it's, it's you great to have idea you today. where that was, what city, town? Oh, my goodness. It would have been, I think it was in Tennessee somewhere, you know, um, with an artist in residency program or something. Um, hmm. Gosh, it's been, it's been many years, so. I can't, I can't remember exactly, but so maybe it was a festival or something. You're, you're having a senior moment right now. But that's okay. <laughs> I know, right, right. <laughs> so, well, one of the things that I've always been impressed with, really, is your ability to capture different characters on stage. Now, some of your stories, you create, you know, five, ten, maybe even more characters and you portray their characterizations and the uniqueness of them and the stories that you tell. How, how do you go about doing that? I mean, some people could say, okay, I could come up with one or two different voices or sound effects and so on, but, but this seems to be something that you're ex, uh, really especially skilled at. You know, I have no idea, except I can only hypothesize where all of these voices came from, the, watching old you know, reading comics, you know, I have Marvel comics from the 60s that I still have right now. Oh, wow. Long box, in acid-free plastic. And then watching the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Uh, and then the Three Stooges. Oh, yeah, I love my Three Stooges. 
and Halal and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, just listening to the character voices. And interestingly enough, as a kid, I stuttered, stuttered hmm. terribly. So I don't know how much of that made me more bashful and shy. And then I found out later in research that there's this thing called selective mutism, where I would barely speak in public at churches and at school unless I was called on, and then that nervousness would make me stammer. Then I started listening to radio and listening to ballads, especially my favorite ballad of all time by Jimmy Dean, Big Bad John. And in 1961, I was 10 years old, that thing came on the radio, and I remembered it and recited it flawlessly. I think I did it better than Jimmy Dean, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I still performed it every night at storytelling festivals. And so then I watched Johnny Carson's show one day, and lo and behold, Johnny Carson had a Mel Tillis on, country singer, who sang Smooth as Silk, and then sat down at Johnny's desk and stammered all over the interview. So I found it a meter, rhythm, and rhyme. Hmm. That's what it's all about, and that's how I overcame the stuttering complex, and that's how I then kept all those voices and characters in my head, and I just tap into this subconscious thing in the inner recesses of my brain, and these character voices just come down. That's great, and um, I know that you do some original stories, some folk tales as well. Um, and actually, I was curious about this as well, is when you are developing, let's say, a folk tale, do you typically um, research throughout history different versions of that folk tale and story, um, or do you tend to just kind of get the idea for it and then go in your own direction? I do a lot of research. As a matter of fact, having been a National Park Service ranger, as you mentioned in the introduction, that was part of the uh, job description is to do exhaustive research when mm-hmm. I'm trying to portray a character in living history or doing a tour in the museum under the Gateway Arch on the Lewis and Clark expedition or the Indian Wars or the Civil War is to go into exhaustive research and then take those characters. A little, little did I know that all the characters in history that I was learning, I was then setting pace for future events, which was to create an entire repertoire of living history programming. Once I, um, <laughs> I put up my Smokey the Bear hat <laughs> and went for uh, full-time freelance storytelling status. So I do all of that research, and then go deeper into folk tales. And my favorite stories, as you well know, and your daughter's folk tales and fairy tales found in our library systems under the numbers 398.2. I know among storytellers, sometimes there is, I don't know, I would say maybe a reticence to tell Folk tales or fairy tales from maybe someone who's from a different culture than they are, or something like that, and it, as a way of respecting the culture. But 
one of the things that I've always believed is that stories only survive as long as they're told. And so I tend to be more of a, promote, a proponent of, you know, respecting uh, the story in the original form and so on, but, but continuing to keep the stories alive by telling them. Exactly. And, you know, there's, it's an age-old battle, Stephen, about cultural appropriation of stories. Yeah. There are some people who are a lot more sensitive about that, um, especially First Nation people, because their stories are more spiritually based mm-hmm. than Jack Steele's, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and Anansi the Spider stories from Ghana, West Africa, uh, are stories that teach us how not to act. Those stories are more universal than the First Nation people's stories, which are, I feel, a lot more spiritually based. And what I found was that one day I was at a, an office conference in Charlotte, North Carolina, and this woman, Gail E. Haley, had published a book called A Story, A Story, about Anansi the Spider. It was basically the first Anansi story book that was introduced to American reading audiences. Oh, wow. And she got really raked over the coals by some other African-American authors and storytellers in Charlotte about appropriation of that story Hmm. title. And she and I met at lunch, and she was crying about, did she do the wrong thing? And I said, up to that point, nobody in America had heard about Anansi in, in library systems in bookstores. Yeah. So she did not a disservice, but a service to the mm. public. Yeah, no, that is, um, that's good yeah. that you were able to encourage her in that way. Uh, she was, uh, those tears dried up immediately. Wow. So she was given license. And it's so funny, it happens all the time. In 1988, here in St. Louis, there was a conference through the National Storytelling Network about this very subject. And ooh, it was a battle royale. <laughs> it was at Fond Bond College here, and oh my goodness, <laughs> Whew, I tell you, it was like <laughs> World War Three <laughs> appropriation. So I was sitting next to this German woman, Susan Klein, who lives in Martha's Vineyard, and she and I was sort of exchanging barbs back and forth during all this um, battle royale and. And so we decided that we would help in the battle. And I said to the audience that Susan Klein gave me permission to do the Brothers Grimm. I give her permission to do a Nancy the Spider. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) All about permissions. That is interesting now that I think about it. Most people don't, you know try to ask for permission to tell grim stories or from someone from Germany and no. so on, but those tend to be, you know, more, um, I guess, commonly used by all different types of storytellers. So I think what exactly. you bring up is good. Yeah. You know, respecting yeah, you know, you and, yeah. Respecting the culture. So, you know, and, and it goes back to this old adage, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah. Many white English teachers and white, and usually white female storytellers and teachers talk to me about doing dialect 
poetry mm. and stories. And I said, it's a very, very touchy subject because, you know, it's kind of difficult to get beyond that. I mean, it almost crosses this line into telling First Nation people stories, mm. trying to do this Negro dialect, as they call it, back during the time of the writings of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. But then, there, you know, William Dean Howells, you know, he appropriated many of the uh, black dialect stories, as did many people in Georgia. The Wren's Nest, basically, uh, was created through the um, appropriation of black folk tales, and Uncle Remus became the character. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So finding ways to, you know, respect the culture, get permission when necessary, and and um, and yet, you know, look for ways to to not, in, I guess, insult uh, someone who's from that you know background or or culture, and and um, yeah, I. I'm a big proponent of trying to keep stories alive, however we, you know, uh, respecting, of course. Yeah. But let's keep I, going, um, you know. I was telling at a festival in Boulder, Colorado, several years ago, and there was this wonderful story that I told about a Chinese boy who met a shapeshifter. Hmm. And the shapeshifter was in the form of a short, fat, bald old man. He was sort of like a Buddha figure. But these hordes of Genghis Khan were coming to uh, murder and pillage kill, the city. And the short, fat, bold old man was asking all the rich, very wealthy, elitist people for a bowl of rice and a pot of tea, and they refused him. So the young boy gave the bowl of rice and pot of tea, all he had to give. And the shapeshifter became a dragon mm. and just whipped these guys right back up into the um, hills of the Himalayas. And <laughs> I told the story, there were several Asian people in the audience, and, well, I was nervous that day. <laughs> <laughs> but it was such a powerful story, I had to tell it. And so uh, a professor, he called me to the side, he gave me some tips how to tell the story in a more appropriate way. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've traveled a a bit and taught storytelling in different places, and I know there are just some fantastic stories that I've learned from India when I've been to India. And, you know, one of the ways that I'll do it is I'll say, you know, this is a story that I heard in India, uh, you know, from my friend who's a storyteller, storyteller there, and I, I might share the story and so people understand that it's actually, in a sense, it's my story that I'm telling from my experience of hearing it from, you know, my friend. And um, and that seems, for the most part, people are appreciate that. Yes, they do. By and large, they do. Yeah. Now, one of the things that uh, I, I like about your, your stories is I know you've been doing it for for many years, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, that 
at least from my experience, I've seen just a fantastic connection with the next generation. And I was wondering if you've noticed anything, Bobby, as far as the listening habits of, of children over the years. Have they changed? I hear people talk so much about, you know, short attention span of, of uh, listeners and children today. I was wondering what your experience has been if, if, uh, if you found that that's the same or, or has, have things changed much? It has and it hasn't. I know that's a politician's answer. But <laughs> break that down. Because I've seen it change, but when I go into a venue and I tell this story, I found out something very universal. The human brain is hardwired for story. Yeah. Mm. So that is inescapable. The human brain is hardwired for story. So everything we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell comes to a story. And so once people get drawn into that vortex of the story, the eyes widen, jaw drops, some people lean forward from their chair, and then the storytelling hypnosis, as I call it, takes over. So no matter how many people think that, you know, things are changing, and the human brain and kids, especially millennials, are being uh, reprogrammed because of technology, Mm-hmm. Use smartphones and iPhones and Androids and laptops and Chromebooks and smart boards. But when all of that garbage is put to the side, then all that remains is the story well told. Mm, and so I like that. there's only the speaker and the listener and imagination. One of the um, differences, of course, with telling stories orally and, uh, you know, watching a movie or a television show is that in, when, uh, when we hear the story, we create all of the images in our minds. And that is a skill, in a sense, to be able to picture all the things as they unfold. So in a sense, when you tell a story to a thousand children, there's a thousand different versions of the story being seen. Whereas if we did a movie or a television show or something, then we would all see the same, you know, images uh, portrayed. Um, and so it, it takes a very special talent to be able to tell a story in a way that all of those people construct in their minds the appropriate, you know, story as it unfolds. Do you do you find that language? Um, is really powerful. I don't know how to say. It. Like, do you tend to rely a lot on specific wording and language to do that, or do you kind of use more physicality to try and create these different characters and different um, images and so on for the listeners to connect with? You know, for me, I use the vocal inflections, the dramatic use of the pause. Mm. I use a lot of movement. Sound effects, you know, the sound effects are just part of my um, modus operandi when I'm telling a story. Sure. And it takes the imagination into a whole other dimension. And this goes all the way back to way before technology was invented and all humans had was a storyteller and then the fire outside. And so, and I started looking at what Carl Jung was doing research on in terms of archetypes. And what happens is that when people were listening to the storyteller, no matter what continent they were on, it would usually be an evening program. 
hmm, with a fire. The backdrop would be a grove of trees or a cliff wall. And then as the storyteller starts to perform the stories, then all of a sudden the silhouettes of the storyteller is cast against the grove of trees on the cliff wall, and these caricatures start coming out in people's minds, and they start seeing ogres and giants and witches and demons and goblins, the hero, the heroine, start seeing the winged horse and... That is what invokes the imagination, and this is how all these different people see different things from their imaginations, and it, it ignites the third eye, which is that pineal gland that Carl Jung talks so much about that resides in the subconscious or unconscious mind. And so the archetypes are the witch, the demon, the dragon, the ogre, the... Um, the different people that we hear about when we hear fairy tales. Mm, yeah. Yeah, when you shared that, it made me think of a story <laughs> that I heard. I don't know if this is true, but it certainly, uh, I like the truth that it portrays, and that is that there was a village, um, the way I heard it was a village in Africa, where some aid workers came and brought televisions, whereas all the people at the village had been listening to the storyteller every night. They would listen to the storyteller, and then they brought these televisions that somehow were able to get stations. And so the people all left the storyteller and were in, you know, enraptured with watching these televisions. Well, a couple of weeks later, the aid workers came back and found that no one was watching the televisions anymore. Everyone was back around the campfire listening to the storyteller, and they said to the people... Why are you going to listen to the storyteller? The television knows so many stories. And uh, the people said, yes, but the storyteller knows me. And, and that, that connection between people is so powerful, like you say. It is palpable. The dynamic transference of energy between one human being to another. You know, and there is things going on now since March and COVID, you know, 19, sure. where people are now going on Zoom and StreamYard and Blue Jeans and all these other devices. As a matter of fact, Timpanogos in Utah is having 40 storytellers all on Zoom. I think the National Festival in Jonesboro will be right behind Timpanogos with mm-hmm. Zoom programs. Our festival in St. Louis had two weeks of online storytelling. Oh, wow. And, yeah, so it's something that we are realigning our brain cells, like it or not. So what I have had to do was just to take the energy that you saw me do on the Jonesboro stage and now bring that to the Zoom camera. And I think other storytellers who know that it's, it's now sink or swim time for professional storytellers. This technology and this COVID doesn't seem to be going anywhere soon. So either you're going to learn this technology or you're going to have to retire from this profession. Mm. Yeah, all of those uh, things that you've mentioned, you know, with the festivals and so on, I, I, uh, I've seen more and more go go digital and uh there's a group that i'm involved with in jonesboro called the jonesboro storytellers guild and uh we do shows on tuesday nights and uh of course those have all gone 
to a Zoom or virtual program. And I find telling a story to a computer screen is so much different than telling it to a live audience. <laughs> so disconcerting and disorienting, yeah. staring into the abyss of a little green light. I um I really like playing off from the response of listeners when I'm telling a story and you, you look in their eyes or you see them nod or smile or laugh or yeah, or yeah. You, they look at you quizzically because they don't understand what just happened or what you said and you adapt to it. And so this form of storytelling is a challenge for me. It is a challenge for most all professional storytellers. And yeah. some people think that you can get around this whole thing about the audience interaction by going into the chat room. I find uh-huh. that to be very distracting. <laughs> Being able to chat the entire time a storyteller is performing. You know, I had to train myself, stop looking at the chats. Yeah. Tell the story. You know, then you make the other listeners look at the chats instead of instead of listening to the storyteller. So we need to fix that people. <laughs> I um I don't I don't know what the solution is to to finding a way to getting the live uh energy or connection that you that you spoke about between the you know the storyteller and the listeners into this new uh form format and um and it's so I'm hoping as you are I know that the covid business and and all of it does does ease up and we're able to get back to some of the storytelling live with with people in the audience. Who knows where things will go next year? Exactly. You know, every time a college or a university tries to bring students back on campus, all of a sudden there's a spike, and then they start sending the students home. And, of course, the students may be taking the virus back to their houses. So we're in a very strange time right now uh, you know we live for hugs you know you give mm. a handshake you give a hug and now we're trained not to do that yeah huh you know my wife uh works at a college and she's a professor as well as an administrator and they have different signs throughout the college that say uh, you know, keep six feet of social distance, and she's going around and changing the signs. I don't know if she's supposed to or not, but she's changing the signs so they're six feet of physical distance. She's like, we don't want people socially distant. We want them socially connected with each other. She's like, yes, keep your physical distance, <laughs> but she's like, we. And it's similar to what you just said. We thrive on you know, connection with people and finding ways to do that um, is is a challenge, but it's so important. It's so vital. I know. You know, even if a storyteller is live somewhere, you can't see people's smiles because they're wearing a mask. Uh-huh. There you go. That's true. Um I was just thinking back to when you when you started telling about some of the influences that you had early, you know, in story and storytelling and how um, you mentioned both comic books and also television shows and also singers. Yes. And I love that there were um, 
kind of all these tributaries that came together to form your unique style of storytelling. Do you remember a time where it kind of struck you or you said, you know what, this is something that I'm either good at or that I really feel a passion to do, it's creating and sharing and telling stories. Was there any specific, you know, calling moment or anything like that for you, or is it just a natural progression for you? A paradigm shift. A paradigm uh, shift. Like there you go. Tremor and the force. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually it was. It was in high school at Sumner High School in St. Louis, and I was in drama class, and I had this wonderful drama teacher, Claire Lockman voice, and she showed me another dimension to my personality because I was so bashful and shy and starting really didn't leave until probably after my sophomore year. But in drama class, I could be these other personas. Hmm. I didn't have to be Bobby Norfolk. I could be whomever the persona was on stage in the play. And so I started seeing how then I could then become an actor. And so then after I left high school, went to college, and started reciting poetry. And then after college, I started being a stand-up comedian. And the stand-up comedy was, I thought this this is it. This is where I need to be. Yeah because I was unofficially being mentored, they didn't know it at the time, was uh, political satirist Dick Gregory, comedian Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. who was the dirty comedian, and then there was Bill Cosby, who was the clean, quote-unquote, comedian, uh-huh. and George Carlin, who was the wordsmith. Hmm. And I'm channeling, all, channeling their energies and their talents and boy, I thought this is it. And whenever big name acts came to St. Louis, I got to open for them. Oh, interesting. Promoters, yeah. They had me open for Ahmed Jamal, B.B. King, Lou Rawls, Roberta Flack, Pebo Bryson, the Jazz Crusaders. And the educational component was missing, which was mm. key. And so at the Gateway Arch, where I was performing, the St. Louis Storytelling Festival started. And here I thought storytelling was something just to put babies down for the night. Yeah. And here some of the best storytellers on the Jonesboro stage came to St. Louis for our first festival in 1980. And I asked the chief ranger if I could take off on Monday and Tuesday and work in the schools to hone and craft my storytelling skills. Then work as a park ranger Wednesday through Sunday, he said, go for it. Huh, interesting. So whenever there was no big name acts coming through St. Louis, then I started working with the St. Louis Black Repertory Company and stay busy. So I was in 10 plays with the Black Repertory Company. Wow. And so I was wearing multiple hats. But all of it came together, Stephen, with storytelling. I could tap pathos yeah. and humor and poetry and prose and acting and put it into story. I think that's fantastic that you had all of these different influences 
in your stories and storytelling, especially early on as you began to craft your own you know, voice and your own way of uh, sharing and, and telling stories. And I like that you had, you know, acting, also stand-up comedian, uh, or stand-up comedy background. Um, and I, th- I think that uh, today sometimes storytellers almost draw a, a strong line between some of these different uh, forms of telling stories. Oh, he's a stand-up comedian. Oh, he's a professional storyteller. She's an actor. She's an actress. So, uh, they're all very different. But, but, um, but for you, all of these influence the way that you actually tell stories today. Do you, do you make a differentiation between acting as, as an art form and storytelling? Or do you see more of a uh, uh, similarity between them than differences? My genre now is called story slash theater, uh-huh. so story theater. But the thing about storytelling is that you can take it like silly putty, soft clay, mold it and weave it and rearrange it into your own style. With the play, you have to read the lines as written on the page, mm-hmm. especially if you're working with an ensemble. You can't go into improv. <laughs> In a play, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm doing my own thing tonight. The right. actors be damned. So, the story is much different. You know, but the reason it's similar to is there's still a magic there, the, mm-hmm. the, the magic of listening and imagination. That's why it is sacrilegious for people to be having cell phone conversations or the phones going off in the theater. Mm-hmm. And you don't yeah. walk into a theater after the um, lights dim. Hmm. They will not yeah. let you in until intermission. And then you can't be walking between the people on stage and people in the audience. Excuse me, excuse me. So, so was that your foot? No. <laughs> you break the magic of the fourth wall. I was telling stories one time. At um, a gymnasium, it was a banquet meal, and anyway, in the middle of one of the stories, someone stood up and started walking back and forth in front of the stage, just randomly. I was like, what do you do? Because everyone's seeing this thinking, you know, what's going on? Like, what, what, how's Steve going to respond? And, and um, I didn't know exactly what to what to say or what to do because it was so unusual for me because uh, you do have this space of, you know, here's the storyteller and here's the listeners. And it created a very awkward moment in the middle of a presentation. <laughs> so how did that resolve itself? Well, yeah, well, it's interesting you asked that because I finally said, uh, I was trying to draw attention to it with also making it lighthearted in a way. I said, oh, don't worry, you're not bothering us. And I thought the person would sort of realize, oh, you know, I need to sit down or something like that. Um, Well, of course, later on afterwards, some people thought I was making fun of this person. And um, I was like, oh, man, I just felt terrible because that was the last thing I wanted to do. I didn't want to, um, you know, mock or make fun of them. But... um, but uh yeah uh apparently they had i don't know that it i don't know that the person was on the autistic scale or what but it was someone who had a certain social um 
uh, kind of issues and, and so on, maybe didn't understand the social context and so on. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, the last thing I wanted was for people to think I was making fun of them, but I didn't know how to, well, what would you have done? If suddenly someone starts to do that, well, how would you respond well, in the middle of a story? <laughs> there are different ways that I've dealt with it as stand-up comedian because one of the people that I studied when I did nightclub comedy was Don Rickles. Okay. He took no prisoners to hecklers. As a matter of fact, he would be the heckler. He wouldn't wait for somebody to heckle him. He would just attack the audience. And so I created that persona that would shut down any potential hecklers. But mm-hmm. then I go into libraries and you cannot keep people out of the library, whether they be ADD, ADHD, Asperger, mm-hmm. you know, and so you expect the unexpected. I was writing an over story, I guarantee you, in my library. Um, a kid was still wailing and screaming and crying. And I learned how to just shut it down and just focus on the story mm. and maybe look over to the librarian, help me. <laughs> <laughs> and the librarians, usually they figured it out too. They would say, now, nah, if your child gets a little bit anxious or uncomfortable, it's okay to take them out into the lobby till they right. calm down and bring them back in. One time at our so, church, I was... Oh, oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was saying, it's all, you know, you, you need some help from the librarians or your clients to help quell that. Yeah. I was I was just thinking of when you shared that, I was thinking of a time where I was teaching some stories, some Bible stories at our church to the children in the Sunday school program. And um, this mother came by and dropped her two sons off. And literally one of them tackled the other one, and they were wrestling on the ground, like trying to hurt each other, not just for fun. So she drops them off, and she looks at me and says, good luck, and walks away. (laughs) I'm like, really? Really? You're just going to walk away and tell me good luck? So... So these are the things we don't have to deal with, uh, you know, on Zoom or virtual storytelling, I suppose. But uh, No, we don't. As a matter of fact, well, a little bit we do, because this is why the host Zoom will have to mute the audience. Because oh, there you go. Sure. People are yeah. trying to figure out Zoom. They, they, the audience is not muted. So you yeah. do, I've heard women doing vacuum cleaning and dog oh, barking, no. You know, it's wrestling in the background like you're... Tikes, yeah, and so the host, you them, or just kick them off the Zoom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've heard where you know you've been one once, the last warning. Wow, it's different times for sure. Now, well, um, I was curious a little bit because I've mentioned your storytelling for children, and we've talked a little bit about that. But you also do programs for adults, and you do living history, you know, programs and so on like this. Do you find that there's a different repertoire that you have for adult audiences or children, or do you find that some stories work really well for uh, people of all ages? The Lewis and Clark program is for all ages, even though it is basically history. York, who was the enslaved man of William Clark, went on the Lewis and Clark expedition and for two years, he helped the 
process of the core of discovery, make it from St. Louis to Oregon, back to St. Louis. York was remanded to slavery. Clark refused to free him Hmm. after all the successes they made, having lost only one man in two years on that journey from appendicitis. Came back and reported to Thomas Jefferson on their findings. And I've had this program all the way from kindergarten to senior citizens, and the effect is the same. Hmm. They were in all, they actually said, We've went on the journey with me. As a matter of fact, in Jefferson City, the capital of Missouri, I did this program for K through 12th grade in one audience. And afterwards, I said, any questions? And the kindergartners were raising their hands, wanting to know about Sacagawea. And somebody said, no, her name is really Sacagawea. Sacagawea. <laughs> and another kid asked how many Appaloosa horses went up on the Lolo Trail in the Rocky Mountains. And these, these sisters were, non-sisters were looking, oh, my goodness, oh, they were listening. <laughs> that's that's so, great. You know, K through 12, most people would shy away from uh, doing a program with that wide of an age span. They would run out the building like they're <laughs> What is it about uh, that know, story, do you think, that has such a great appeal to people of all ages? The first person narrative. Ah. And then the characters that I, I portray, everybody, not just York, William Clark, Meredith Lewis, Thomas Jefferson, wow. the First Nation, Indian people, the grizzly bear, the bison, mm. the prairie dogs, you know, the elk, <laughs> the flora, and, the, and it's it's a it's a, <laughs> a visual spectacle and oral extravaganza I take them through. This is what I did this thing for some old people in the Elks Lodge okay. in Alton, Illinois. And they had all been on the Lewis and Clark Trail. It was um well the bicentennial was two thousand four. Oh wow. But because the the voyage was eighteen oh four, so in two thousand four the bicentennial was just huge, and all of these people with Winnebago's and RVs started going up and down the um, Lewis and Clark Trail, and they all said that it brought everything back to them. Hmm. This one-hour program. That's just like going on the yeah. journey again. I mean, that's a really a gift that you can give to people. Um, in that sense, it's their gift of their memories. And, uh, you know, even laughter is a gift to be able to tell a story and see people laugh. Uh, you know, in our world, there are so many things that um, are rough and difficult and, you know, so many reasons not to laugh. And so I feel like it's always, any time I meet a storyteller who, you know, can share the gift of laughter, I think that's just a powerful, powerful thing. Yes, sir. I agree. I agree. There's some... Um research that I did about laughter and frowning is that when you're frowning and being hateful, there's a poison that is released in the uh, bloodstream 
mm. from some of your glands. When you laugh, there's an elixir, a euphoric elixir that is released. Wow. I believe it. That's that's interesting. I want to know more about. I need to study study up on that. That's fascinating. Now, Bobby, I know that you also have, uh, as well as telling stories and story theater and so on, that you're also an author and you have a, a memoir called Eye to the Sky, Storytelling on the Edge of Magic that's, um, that's released. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how people can get a copy of that for themselves? Ah, the memoir. I got put in my place by some middle school students in Springfield, Illinois, and they were in the gifted class. And I was there in that building for an entire day. I did four programs, and then I was in the library media center for lunch, and I was going to do my fourth program. And so (laughs) I saw a bunch of the students in a huddle, and I asked the librarian, I said, what is that all about? Why are they huddling over there? She said, we'll yeah. find out, Mr. Norfolk. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the spokesperson came up <clears throat> to the mic. Mr. Norfolk, you have done folk tales and fairy tales and myths and legends and poetry. What about your personal journey? You haven't talked about that. I said, whoa. And I said, you got me. No, I haven't. And I said that when I get back to St. Louis, I'm going to start creating some bullet points and some outlines to start my memoir. Mm. And I did. So there, as a matter of fact, in the liner notes, I dedicate the book to them. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And so he talks about my journey all the way from a kid when I listened to radio, theater of the mind radio, and then going into all those things we already talked about, stand-up comedy and theater and park rangering, and then my travels around the world. And I talk about some of the more fantastical things that I have encountered in my world travel. And I used the word magic in the subtitle because I was so enthralled with J.K. Rowling's novels. And Jim Dale. And for those that don't know, I don't know if you know this, even Jim Dale has narrated all of J.K. Rowling's novels. Oh, wow. Unabridged. Unabridged. Yeah. He created 125 voices for God of the Fire on Grammy. <laughs> what? <laughs> Incredible. I, I mean, I trained myself on listening to his works. Wow. And when I bought Goblet of Fire on the CD, it's when cars still had CDs. <laughs> I was driving from Atlanta, St. Louis, and back. And there was 18 hours of listening. And I started Goblet of Fire leaving St. Louis nine hours and then coming back nine hours, I was done. And that 18 hours is like two hours. Wow. That was a slow reader, but a fast listener. <laughs> um, no, that's that's great. That's a neat connection. You know, I was... Um, I think I heard the first of the Harry Potter books on CD 
back in the day when my children were reading through them and so on. And I was driving somewhere, and uh, I didn't know who was narrating it. And, of course, I listened to it, and it was similar. I was on a long drive, and I just couldn't get enough of the story. And I think it was a combination of, you know, great storytelling, great writing, and the narrator. And and uh, that's really interesting, 125 you know, voices. That's amazing. And each voice is distinctively different from the other. And Warner Brothers has done a disservice, as far as I'm concerned, to the book and mm. the uh, narration, because it's totally changed from Rowling's writings. It's totally different. And so that is why I prefer the book and the CDs to the movie. Mm-hmm. For example, just one big example. In Goblet of Fire, when Harry was being um, doing the second task and he had to go underwater, Dobby, the house elf, gave him the gillyweed. But in the movie, Neville Longbottom gave him the gillyweed. Hello. Why do one of those change that? I know it's always <laughs> it's always difficult, you know, taking one art form, moving it to another, you know, media and so on. But uh, but certainly fans of the books will notice, you know, they'll notice immediately. Yeah, choices like that immediately. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, they're aficionados of the book and the CDs in the movie when something was all weirded out about one of the I could see people sitting in their chairs looking around and say, are you watching this? <laughs> <laughs> I remember there was one of the stories that I saw the movie for. My daughter had read the book. She's like, Dad, you have to take me to this book. I, I don't remember. Maybe it was the fifth book. Uh, but anyway, we went to go see the movie, and there were some things happening in the movie, and I said, I don't really understand what's happening. She said, oh, you have to read the book. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. I'm not going to read an 800-page book to understand a two-hour-long movie. Why you need the CD or now flash drive or audible. So, well, that's great. You know, so Eye to the Sky is your memoir, and I know you're working in some other programs as well. What's kind of on the horizon for you, Bobby? The the, the book is one thing, and somebody even asked me about, you know, eventually even narrating the book oh, itself. Yeah. So I thought, waiting for a few more book sales to kick in, then, yeah, make some bucks, and then I can go into the studio and narrate my own novel, I mean novel, my own memoir. Sure. And higher education television in St. Louis has been doing several different projects of storytelling and living history, which will eventually be on pay-per-view. So hopefully by October, people can pull up the higher education television website and see my works there. And is there, um, do you have a website or anything where you would want to direct people if they say, no, this is really interesting? I don't even know. Do you do consulting now for schools or, or, you know, virtual workshops, anything along those lines? 
I'm trying to break it into into that market now. So you know, oh, yeah. the teachers teachers and administrators don't know what they want to do yet with yeah. their students. So I didn't want to be too pushy with them. As a matter of fact, about I said in April, I got a call from a teacher in Memphis, Tennessee, to do a program because she had a grant through the Tennessee Arts Commission. And I said, well, this is April. I said, um, this Zoom program. I said, what about September for the program? She said, no, we won't be ready until November. And then that's amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm just trying to figure out, along with these administrators and teachers, what they want to do and how they want to do it because they got to have the best of intentions. Yeah. When schools convene and then two days later they send everybody home again. Mm. Well that's that's true and so if there are, you know, any teachers, administrators out there listening who say, you know, this sounds fascinating, I want to, you know, contact Bobby and just find out more about the possibilities of him doing sort of some of these remote story shows or, or workshops and so on. Where would you tell them to go? Is there a website you'd like them to Yes sir to put them um, to Google my name, bobbynorfolk.com, and go to the website there and pick and choose from the 30 programs that I have offered. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. That's, I did not want to pigeonhole cool. myself with just a few <laughs> programs. Well, so, that's and great. I found out something important is that you have to teach to the curriculum, have to teach to the lesson. Hmm. And I call myself an edutainer. I like it. So, Bobby, thanks so much for being on the show today and for chatting about story and storytelling. And and that it's been, uh, like I say, uh, it's been an honor to have you. Yes, sir. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you. And you should have come up and introduced yourself down there in Jonesboro when we could still shake hands and hug. <laughs> Next I'll time we'll do it for sure. <laughs> so we also thank, I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, and um, and please do check out Bobby's website and some of his books and his um, recordings. And and and, uh, and maybe if you are able to, catch him in person as soon as things open up. So thanks again for listening. For more information about our other guests and to check out our other podcasts and broadcasts, search on iTunes or Spotify for The Story Blender or click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.